Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. To start this talk, I want to uh, share with you a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. <clears throat> Just to put you in a good frame of mind. <clears throat> Calvin says, here I am, happy and content. The next frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) Next frame, so now I'm no longer content. (laughs) I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. (laughs) Next frame. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. (laughs) What I want to talk with you about tonight and explore together is working with thought. You probably noticed it come up once or twice. And it can create entire worlds. It can create problems and struggles. It can also create feelings of love and compassion and understanding. Thought is not the enemy. And it's, I think, important to keep that in mind as we do this practice because it's so easy to look at that phenomenon that we have that we can create as being the problem and this is the buddha famous opening of the dhammapada on thought we are what we think all that we are arises with our thoughts with our thoughts we make the world speak or act With an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. Thoughts are not the enemy. They're just this amazing thing that we can do with what we call mind. Right thought is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path. But thoughts are powerful and they often confuse us. Uh, An exercise that I often do at the beginning class, and perhaps some of you have um, done this before, just close your eyes for a moment and I'll say a word. Trouble. Trouble. 
Notice what happens, what it feels like inside, what images you might have. Take a couple of breaths and erase the blackboard, so to speak. I won't leave you here. And I'll say another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice how it feels inside. Kindness. Just a thought, a word plopped in into your mind, non sequitur. Do you notice any difference between the two? And can you imagine what happens as we keep on replaying certain thoughts over and over and over, how it affects our bodies, our whole sense of being? And usually we play over the ones that trouble us. don't know why that is, but it just seems to be a habit that we get caught up in. And the, the problem comes when we believe those thoughts, not only the initial thought, but they often give rise to a whole proliferation of thought, what's called papancha in the, in the teachings. One thought leading to another, to another. You're sitting, doing the loving kindness, for instance, doing the metta meditation. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. And you just feel contracted and cold. And then the thought creeps in. I just can't do this. I just can't feel loving kindness. Giving rise perhaps to another thought. I wasn't loved when I was a kid. That's the problem. (laughs) Giving rise to another thought. I'm not lovable. That's why. Of course I wasn't loved. Oof, look at me. Just this whole scenario out of nothing that we create. I've shared the story when I was a Um, high school student and just entering into this uh, very rigorous high school in New York, doing pretty well in my previous school career without trying too hard. Um, And the the first few weeks of school, we had a surprise chem quiz where this chem teacher, chemistry teacher, wanted to show us we better take this seriously. And the, the average score was four out of ten right, and I got two out of ten. I had never failed a test before that, that day. That night, I was in bed, just going around and around. I didn't tell my parents, just around and around, and I had myself kicked out of school uh, on a downward spiral, disgraced, running away from home, and ending up on the Bowery in New York <laughs> as, as a wino, right? <laughs> and I really believed it. I didn't know if there was any point in continuing. We do that with ourselves, don't we? You probably have seen it lots of different places here. You have a, an attraction and there's the whole VR blossoming. Vipassana romance, or somebody bugs you and then it turns into the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where (laughs) that fills your day, just the way they are, and if they weren't here, you'd be doing this right, and 
it's amazing how we just spin out into this whole world. <clears throat> Thoughts are as real as we make them. And we can, if we see clearly their nature, choose not to make them anything more than these blips that come into consciousness, arising and passing away. But as soon as we get hooked and taking them to be real, there's this intense reaction. But in one moment it can change. I had a, an interesting thing happen to me this morning um, that showed, showed this and showed the power of, of mindfulness too. I, I, um, my son Adam just turned nine and he got a puppy for his, his birthday. It's our first dog, my first dog too. And it's really been wonderful having him around. And Adam has taken his responsibility very seriously. He's wanted to feel more, responsibi- more responsible. So he gets up early in the morning, 6.15 or 6.30 when he and the dog, when the dog wakes up and goes for a walk before school. And he's also in this process in the last couple of months of starting to feel his independence along with more responsibility and individuating from me where he's not looking to me with this awe and wonderful respect, but kind of getting into the the hang of saying, come on, Dad, you know, give me some space and and it's it's been a big letting go for me just to 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 not be his everything. Um, so anyway, this morning it was going to be um, it was a little bit late, and I wasn't going to be driving him to school as I usually do the carpool on Monday and Tuesday because uh, I was going to be coming here for earlier interviews. And he doesn't wear a watch but he's been going on these long walks these last four Thanksgiving Day holidays. And I, I got a watch that he didn't even know I had from the drawer. And I came out into the kitchen. Tell, I was about to tell him, here's a watch. Just uh, If you want it, you can use it for your walks. And just come back by 7.30 because mom is taking you to school and just to make sure you have the time right. I got into the kitchen, I walk in, and he had just taken the dog, the dog dog was eating outside, and he was stark naked about, he had just gotten a few things and is going to be getting dressed and taking the dog out. I walk into the kitchen with the watch, and he said, what? (laughs) Like, hey, leave me alone, this is my time, and you know, you don't have to go checking up on me. And I, I said, Adam? Uh, look, I just came in to give you a watch. You know. He said, what? You know. <laughs> oh. He said, I'll come back on time. I said, oh, okay, okay. All right. That's the way you want it. You know? <laughs> and I went into the living room. I was wide awake by then. Figured, well, I'm not going to be around him. I'll get the, the newspaper, sit down and read the sports section, and I'll be in the, in the living room with the paper, my head in the paper, so I don't have to see him. And, I'll, and he won't be able to see me, and I'll show him. And there I was, just 
doing feeling that what that indignant every time I'd see him what <laughs> and I was getting really angry I'll show him I'm not going to say hi to him for the next three days <laughs> see how he like he'll have to beg me to be friends with be friendly with him and this went on for about five minutes maybe ten <clears throat> and then all of a sudden I just remembered this practice that I've been doing lately <laughs> I mean besides the meditation practice there's one practice that I've been playing around with in the last uh, month or so what thought are you believing right now and I just asked myself that question and it, it's it's neat when it pops up more spontaneously as it has been. It took me about 10 minutes, but it did come up. What thought are you believing right now? And I just for a moment saw this expectation that he wasn't supposed to individuate and he was supposed to still be so grateful that, I, that I'm there helping him out and that he should be a certain way and that he's not, I'm going to get really... I'm going to show him. And in a moment, it was this relief. Oh, I don't have to believe that story. I mean, I can deal with things later on from a more balanced place when we both have time and, and talk about respect and things like that. But I don't have to get into this stew. And then I started reading the sports section and enjoying it. It was, it was great. Oh, yeah, it's a good game, reading it. And in just a moment, this this whole stew transformed. The Buddha talks about how we grasp onto things. This is the cause of suffering. And in particular, we grasp onto our thoughts. We get very attached by them. He says, there are many kinds of suffering in the world, and all of them grow from the same source, grasping. When a person knows no better, he or she gives way to this grasping, and slow and dulled goes through one misery after another. So do not create it for yourselves. Use your knowledge to see how suffering begins and develops in attachment. And one of the main areas of attachment is attachment to our thoughts. Just by taking them to be real. When we understand their true nature, we see they arise out of nothing and they return into emptiness. We don't have to battle them. We don't have to blame ourselves from them, for them. We don't have to take them to be who I am, my thought. Joseph Goldstein has a very um, wonderful instruction if you're having difficulties with thoughts. He says, imagine that they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> you might try that. Come to, come to the room, and you can have the bizarre, awful, angry, ridiculous thoughts. Just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. You're just picking up the radio waves. One of the difficulties comes when we try to figure them out, try to somehow work with them and push them away and, f and understand why they're here and what to do about them. And that just gets us spinning our wheels more and more and more. And that is extra. 
It's like trying to pry yourself out of a, a tar pit with one limb and then another and then another. This is um, a letter that somebody wrote to me. Um, it was at the end of a retreat that we, um, actually Sylvia and, uh, and Guy and I taught this, this summer up in Santa Rosa. This is from somebody who, it was her first retreat, and she went through a pretty um, intense time. Lots of fear, lots of stuff that came up about uh, memories, and um, and it, I had a feeling, which it, it turned out to be right, that this is going to. She was touching some very deep places, and it would, if she could get some space around it. And she came more often for interviews. That this would be very, very powerful for her. And she wrote me this letter at the end. Um, she tacked onto the bulletin board after. Uh, some some really beautiful words about how the retreat was for her. She says, the one thing that is indelibly in my brain is remembering you don't have to figure it out. And that would not even register in my brain as an option before. Then yesterday, I was walking and struggling in my brain thinking round and round, and this voice came into my head that said, you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going and the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. Just asking yourself, what is true right now? What's actually happening? Oh, freaking out, that's what's happening. Or rising and falling, or sitting here and feeling my hands, feeling my butt. The third Zen patriarch says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. It's a, it's a very good pointing to letting go of figuring things out. Because there's no, no ultimate answer. If you're sitting there analyzing, oh, that's why, that's why, and maybe you end up right. All you say at the end is, yep, pretty clever. I'm pretty smart. But in order to have an experience of, ah, Oh, look at that. Seeing things new and fresh, it means you're not using your discursive mind to analyze. We get caught in all kinds of thoughts. On retreat, there are practice thoughts that happen. Of course, the comparing thoughts, you've probably seen them. And it's very, very humbling putting yourself above or below others or maybe comparing from the previous sitting. You're only as good as your last sitting on retreat. Have you noticed that? <laughs> oh man, I got it now. Yeah. And then you feel good for 45 minutes and you sit down and it's humble time again. Those expectations and shoulds and 
all that kind of stuff. And it gets subtler and subtler. Sometimes there's lofty dharma, dharma thoughts, too, that come. Oh, what about selflessness? And then you get spun into this whole dharma book, which is not quite as clear as you hoped it would be, mm-hmm. as you ruminate about selflessness. Sometimes it can start off as a lofty thought and end up in a pretty um, humbling way. On a retreat last year, I was sitting the first half of the three-month course. And um, it was was really, it was getting to be very sweet part of the retreat. And I was given the instruction that Joseph gave to me. He said, okay, at this point, see if you can notice any sense of self that you're creating in your practice. I kind of got excited by that. Okay, this is something new to play around with, just to focus on that. And one time I was doing the the walking meditation downstairs in the the basement, his favorite um, walking area. There's one bowling lane from this center that, uh, from the meditation center it used to, the, the people who inhabited it before had a bowling lane, and it's, it's really nice wood and nobody around, and there's a, uh, uh, a hallway for people to walk by. And I was just, I was really getting into the, into the walking, lifting, moving place, and, and just, it was, hmm, nobody doing it? Great, it was just happening on its own. And through the, the corridor comes this bull in a china shop yogi, who was many people's Vipassana Vendetta on, on this retreat. He just kind of clanged and everywhere. And, and, and he was getting into, um, some people were doing the, the reporting of their practice and uh, Upandita style, where you, talk, you write down uh, your last sitting or your clearest sitting. And sometimes at the end of the sitting, you write a few words on it. This guy had this huge notebook, and he was just writing, writing as he'd be going around the, the, um, uh, the meditation center. And there he was, you know, walking and writing at the same time as I was doing my walking, lifting, moving. <laughs> and a thought came to me, and I just kind of shook my head in disbelief and came to me. I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. <laughs> it was humbling. <laughs> so it gets seductive and subtle. Oh yeah, there's this one and there's that one. And then of course there's thoughts that we have that are about fears, about what if. What if this happens? What if that happens? Somehow having the imagined control over our experience or trying to hold on to it and we get afraid when we lose control that we never had. Fear is about the future. And while you're here in the present, it's not, it doesn't have the hold on us because there's refuge in the present. But we get caught in toppling forward and taking that to be the reality. You know that story about the guy who paints a tiger so realistic on the cave wall that at the end he gets 
scared and frightened and throws up his palette and brush and runs away. And that's what we do. We paint these tigers and we get scared. What if this happens? But what if that happens? But what if it does happen? <laughs> and then there's thoughts that we believe about who we are, our self-image. I'm a loser. I'm a klutz. I'm whatever, an intellect, I'm a star. Those self-image thoughts create a lot of um, limitations. They imprison us in just um, our idea about who we are when we're much greater than that. And often they, they end up leading into doubt. I can't do this because I'm somebody who, whether it's your history, uh, that's the cause of you not being able to concentrate or not feeling love or whatever it is. Or you're just not familiar with happy states of mind. Oh, I'm somebody who's sad. That's my persona. Somebody came into, um, uh, into the interview the other day, and it's not an uncommon thing at all, saying, you know, I've been focusing on tranquility and it's amazing. It's here. I never knew it was here. And realizing that it's probably here a lot more than this person thought. But not giving that space because, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not a tranquil person. <clears throat> Sometimes we hang out more with the, the familiar, even when it's painful, than moving to an unfamiliar uh, more expansive mode. And I remember being with this um, this wonderful teacher. Perhaps a number of you have heard of Michelle Cassou, who teaches uh, the painting experience. It's kind of vipassana on on paper as you as you paint and don't let your mind get in the way. Um, and she was she was sharing a painting that she had done in the middle of her own process where she had died. It was this whole, um, uh, whole series on death that was going around in her, in her mind. And she had died. She was down in, the, in her coffin underground. This is the picture, and she, she shared this with, with people. And in the coffin, it was, it was maggots, and uh, her body was this kind of decaying. And from the coffin up through the ground was this shaft opening up into the, a heaven where there was a, a Buddha-like face and all celestial beings. And it was going to be a wonderful realm. And she said as she was painting this that all she had to do was just decide to move from her coffin up to the heaven realm and she'd be there. But she said, it was so comfortable down in the coffin where I was. It was just kind of familiar. It was warm and it was cozy. And, and it would take some energy to move from, from there up to the top. And I really resonated with that when I, when I heard it. We get so stuck in the familiar, even when it's suffering, just because it's something that's home for us. And that limits us when we believe those kinds of 
of thoughts about what home is. So I just want to ask you for a moment to um, to ask yourself, reflect, what thoughts do you believe these days that cause you suffering? Or about yourself, or about practice? What patterns of thought or pattern particularly gets you stuck and limited in your reality. And what would it be like if you saw the essential emptiness of that thought pattern? I saw it as mental formation and didn't believe it. Just imagine what it would be like. Now just see it as empty. That thought has no reality whatsoever beyond what we attribute to it. And you might, in fact, play around with this practice that that I've been working with. When there's a struggle during your day, and you can feel it sometimes in your body or just feel yourself in a stew, struggle is like a, a sign, a blaring, a neon sign that says attachment somewhere. And just ask yourself, what thought am I believing right now? So struggle doesn't have to be a problem. It can actually be a doorway for you to understand how reality is created. Now, obviously, mindfulness is the best strategy. Just to see it as empty, to name it as thinking The mental noting is very helpful just to note, oh, thinking, thinking, or judging. You've probably heard me just say it so softly like you're caressing a baby, judging, judging, or bringing some humor to the whole pattern of thought so there's some space and lightness about it. Mindfulness is the most effective way to give up the struggle because it just cuts through the the whole story. But sometimes the mindfulness isn't strong enough, as perhaps you've seen. So I wanted to share with you um, the Buddha's advice on dealing with distracting thoughts besides mindfulness. If your main thumb card doesn't work, here's some others that you can also uh, know as possible strategies. By the way, the, the idea of a trump card, mindfulness can't have an agenda to it. So you're not noticing something in order to get rid of it. You can't trick it like that. It knows. <laughs> mindfulness really means 
noticing clearly and allowing for it to be just the way it is. But if it's not strong enough, this is, um, it's called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the Discourse on Dealing with Distracting Thoughts. And he has five other suggestions. And I'll share them with you and, and share some of the uh, classical uh, language. There is the case where, where unskillful thoughts connected with desire, aversion, or delusion arise in a yogi while referring to and attending to a particular theme. That means you got caught. In that case, the yogi should attend to another theme apart from that one, connected with what is skillful. And while attending to this other theme, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. With their abandoning, he steadies his mind right within, settles it, unifies it, and concentrates it. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice would use a small peg to knock out, drive out, and pull out a large one, in the same way he steadies his mind right within, settles, unifies, and concentrates it. So what does this mean? While you're caught in one theme, you should attend to another theme that's more skillful. It means basically substituting unwholesome thoughts, substituting wholesome thoughts for unwholesome thoughts if the mindfulness isn't strong enough. Like, for instance, if you get caught in anger, a skillful, one skillful means besides mindfulness is to um, generate some loving kindness as a balance to that. <clears throat> or if you're caught in desire, reflecting on impermanence, balances out that, uh, that contraction and that grasping. If you're caught in doubt, then reflecting on some, something that inspires faith is a balancing, wholesome, skillful theme. The third Zen patriarch says, when doubts arise, just remember not to. In this not to, nothing is separate. Right there, when doubts arise, just remember, nothing is separate in this. Um, in the Tibetan practice, a skillful thought is remembering bodhicitta, remembering why it is that you're practicing to develop your own wisdom and also for the benefit of all beings. This is uh, Nyoshal Kempo. He says, Often we find ourselves involved in strife with family, colleagues, whatever. It's important and helpful to recognize that this may inevitably arise, yet it does not necessarily need to be seen as a big problem. Everything depends on one's intention. One can work with anything and integrate it into the spiritual practice path through pure mind and good heart, always from the point of view of benefiting others. The very es hard essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever we might do is secondary to that. And so he says, just remember, cultivate 
that intention of practicing for the benefit of all beings. In that moment, your confusion and struggle is seen in a bigger light. Uh, I'm exploring this to deepen my compassion for all beings, whatever. Okay, so that's the first strategy. However, if it doesn't work, there's number two. If unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to this other theme, connected with what is skillful, he should then scrutinize the drawbacks of those thoughts and say something like, Truly, these thoughts of mine are unskillful. These thoughts of mine result in stress. As he is scrutinizing their drawbacks, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. Um, Just as a young woman or man fond of adornment would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung from their neck. In the same way, he sees the danger in those thoughts and steadies his mind right within. Pretty graphic. Hmm? Now, what does that mean? These thoughts of mine are leading me down a place that I'm going to regret. And there's a way that you can do this. Sometimes you know, even though, even though you know better, hmm, if I get into this, I'll be sorry, but you just you leaped in. Particularly with Vipassana romances or some kind of fantasy that just is so seductive. Well, it might not be as... It would be less boring than just sitting here watching my breath anyway. And you're gone. On, on again, this, this retreat last year, um, I was besieged by this, um, this pattern every week. As many of you know, I'm a football fan. Big football fan. And one of the hardest parts of doing six weeks was giving up five Sundays, there was one bye in there, uh, and I knew the schedule, you know, <laughs> one o'clock, Atlanta, you know, on Sunday, and I'd be feeling as Friday was coming on, I, my body was just kind of gearing up to the game, you know, I'm not proud of this, mind you, but it, 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 it's just the way it is, you know? uh, uh, uh. so, by Sunday, 10 to 1, I was plugged in, and from 1 until 4, I was vibrating, just imagining whatever was going on, you know, and then it took me about, you know, a few hours to come down. Maybe by Monday it was, I'd settle down again. I mean, there were other things that were happening, but this, this was, uh, this was the syndrome that happened the first three weeks, Finally, I said, this is too much. You know, I've got to do something with it. Uh, and particularly uh, the thought, not just during the, as the game was approaching, but when I thought about Steve Young, that was a whole other train of thoughts that, because he's my, my hero. Uh-oh, Steve, I could feel it coming on. No, no, I'm going to be, I can't get it out. 
And I would just finally, after about three weeks, I said, I've got to be very vigilant in this because I'll get, just get sucked in every time for, you know, 45 minutes or however long, just as the theme playing in the background. And I, I just became vigilant and put the whole thing into a frame calling it football thoughts. Just as soon I'd be walking and there I'd see old number eight, you know, just football thoughts. And I just caught it. I would catch it. And it was, it became very exciting actually for me to see that there's a way to handle, uh, get a handle on it. And you might experiment that with that with some particular theme that you keep on getting caught up in. Just give it a name, a, a light name, but really careful with it. Ah, I see it. And I don't want to go down this, this road. So that's the second one. The third suggestion, if that one doesn't work, if unskillful thoughts still arise while scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, he should then produce forgetfulness and inattention with regard to those thoughts. Doesn't that sound good? Well, maybe I can do that. Okay. Forgetfulness and inattention? Yeah, I've got some practice at that. <laughs> As he is producing forgetfulness and inattention with regard to them, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. Just as a person with good eyes, not wanting to see forms that had come into range, would close their eyes or look away, in the same way the monk steadies his mind right within, settles it, and so forth. Now, what does that mean, forgetfulness and inattention? What it really means is you don't attend to that thought because you're turning your attention to something else. So you don't have to battle anything, but just shift your awareness to something else that becomes interesting and occupies you. Something that uh, that you might f- that you might be doing or find helpful when you're finding yourself getting caught in in a stew, or feeling very contracted or restless, it's just opening up to sounds. Just backing off. You don't have to keep a battle going. Just listening to sounds, ah. and let your interest uh, draw you in, and the whole drama is not being created. Or another very effective way. And these are all things that probably um, you've seen in your own practice. And so I'm just reminding us. Coming back to your body and just feeling your body sitting here as you are going around and around, confused or uh, scared or whatever, just coming back, oh, let's feel my hands, let's feel my buttocks touching on the cushion. Ah, yes. In a body, how about that? And so you can turn to something else. Or you go for a walk, and you're becoming mindful on the walk. And so you're turning your attention somewhere else. Here's the fourth one. If unskillful thoughts still arise <clears throat> while producing forgetfulness and inattention with regard to those thoughts... The yogi should then attend to the relaxing or stilling 
of thought processes with regard to those thoughts. As he is attending to the relaxing of thought processes with regard to those thoughts, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. Just as the thought would occur to a person walking quickly, why am I walking quickly? Why don't I walk slowly? So he walks slowly. Then the thought occurs to him, why am I walking slowly? Why don't I stand? So he stands. The thought occurs to him then, perhaps, why am I standing? Why don't I sit down? So he sits down. The thought occurs to him, why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? So he lies down. And in this way, giving up the grosser posture takes up the more refined one. In the same way, the monk can steady his mind right within. So basically, that strategy is just giving some space, just lightening up. You give up the battle for just a few moments. And remember, there's another way to deal with this moment. Particularly if you're finding your body quite contracted. Ah, just soften. How can I get some space right now? This is not cheating. See, we said earlier in the retreat, this is skillful means. And then, here's the last one. Uh, which I read with uh, with some caution. <clears throat> if unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to the relaxing of thought processes with regard to those thoughts, then the yogi should beat down, constrain, and crush the mind with his intent. <laughs> As with clenched teeth and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, he is beating down, constraining, and crushing the mind with his intent. Those unskillful thoughts are abandoned. Just as a strong man seeking a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would beat him down, (laughs) constrain, and crush him, in the same way, the yogi steadies his mind right within. Now that's a very tricky one. (laughs) And you must remember that the Buddha came from a warrior caste. And a lot of the images are about subduing your foe, conquering the defilements of mind. When this is done, the only way that I can understand it being done effectively is to do it with firmness but not aversion. Because if you have aversion to your thoughts and if you have aversion to your mind that's creating those thoughts, all you're doing is creating more agitation. But rather, I think it's pointing to a capacity that we have similar to that, that second one where just say, you see the danger and you say no, to just firmly say, no, not now. Like a, a parent, perhaps a better image, 
telling a child no, even though they want to get more into mischief and or maybe might burn their hand or something like that. And you can say very firmly, with understanding and love, no, okay, not now. It can be a useful um, way to deal with your mind. But you have to do it with a lot of kindness. Tough love, I guess they, they call it, you know. And I would be very um, delicate with using that. But all of these point to the fact that thoughts are the place that we get really confused and lost. You know, he had five different methods besides mindfulness. This is not an easy task, and we have to be greatly patient with the process. And any one moment that we see through those thoughts, we are shifting our understanding about the nature of thought. We see them for what they are, as empty. So don't underestimate, even if you notice it one out of ten times, every single time you see it that way is a powerful um, change in your relationship to your mind. And the place that is seeing it when you recognize, oh, freaking out, or oh, getting confused, there is an awareness that is recognizing that, that is larger than the thought, that you could say is the ground of being. This is who you really are. Not that there's an entity in there, but there is consciousness that recognizes the play of consciousness. And we can shift our identification from the story inside to the space out of which things are created, that space of awareness that can see it all without getting confused. It's available to all of us. It's waiting to be discovered be rediscovered. So be kind to your mind. Don't battle it. You can give up the struggle any moment. Okay, so let's sit for a few moments. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on November 27, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.